0: Christianbeekcentral.com oh.
1: Episode 504 <laughs> Warning Access restricted please submit to DNA verification Processing Verification complete Access granted welcome <laughs>
0: Hello and welcome to the Monitor Room at the Christian Geek Central Podcast, a biblical examination and celebration of geekery and geek entertainment, as well as the official podcast of ChristianGeekCentral.com. I'm Peter Franson from Spirit Blade Productions, producing entertainment and resources to hopefully equip, encourage, and inspire Christian geeks like you and me to live increasingly for Christ, experiencing the life-giving freedom and purpose he has made us for. For more information about Spirit Blade Productions, you can check out spiritblade.com. But on the show today, an essential issues look at the DC Comics story Crisis on Infinite Earths. Katja from the Netherlands reviews the audiobook The Dispatcher, and I share some final thoughts on how geeks should prepare to fight our true enemies as we continue in the book of Ephesians. Let's get to it! If I was about to forget every comic story I'd ever read, but could first record a message for myself just before the mind wipe, this would be the result. Christian Geek Central. Oh. pa <laughs> man a wonderful, pa pa Hey, I'm Peter Franson from ChristianGeekCentral.com and Spiritblade Productions. Uh, welcome to Essential Issues, where I talk about my favorite DC comics of the past that are still affordably available today, blabbing about why they're special to me, and what, if anything, they have to say about the essential issues of life. Uh, now, warning, this series freely contains spoilers, but I think even spoiled, the stories I'll share uh, are still well worth reading. Last time was an introduction to the series, so if you didn't see the series intro, I highly recommend checking that out just to get a sense of the intent of the series and what you can expect from it. But uh, if you've seen that already, let's dive in. I am ready to present to you now, Pater, and anyone else that might be watching this video, my first essential DC Comics storyline, and that's Crisis on Infinite Earths. Okay, Pater, Crisis on Infinite Earths is a rare exception in this series, which will normally focus on stories that I would be happy to sit down and read again today. Uh, I only enjoyed reading this story the first one or two times that I read it, and then largely because of uh, what what a history lesson it was, Uh, not, not because it was this great story in and of itself, and a history lesson for a comic book universe I was already invested in. This is not... An enjoyable read for me today... ...unlike the numerous stories that I will be talking about in future episodes of Essential Issues. So just know that this is the uh, weird exception in this series. Um, This is also not at all necessary to read first... ...before diving into other stories in the DC Universe... Uh, ...but you're going to want to read it at some point... ...because it is just referenced and paralleled... ...in so many major DC events in the years that followed. Uh, It features numerous characters that you won't recognize... ...many that have long since vanished in the DC Universe... ...but others have been reinvented in ways... ...that you're going to better appreciate... ...having been exposed to them first here. You'll, You'll be able to think, oh man... This character is, is so cool compared to where they started out. They've been reinvented in just some interesting ways. And so this is just a nice way to get acquainted quickly with a bunch of character concepts, if not like who they are deep inside, you know, um, it, that are that are in the DC universe. It's like a, like a crash course in the character roster, both for heroes and villains throughout the DCU, and it's it's this multiverse-shattering, year-long crossover event uh, that featured nearly every character in DC history up to the point it was published uh, in 1985. I want to say it might have started in 84. I think it was maybe just throughout 85. But uh, anyway, just accept the fact that you're going to feel way out of your depth and treat it kind of like a sci-fi movie that's just crazy weird without explaining itself, even though they really try. <laughs> (laughs) they really try a lot in this story to explain who everyone is oh man i'll get to that in a little bit but uh yeah just go into it and say it's just going to be weird and i'm just and i'm just just accept that like i'm not going to know what's going on and maybe there that there's something interesting about that um trying you know to figure out what's going on and who people are um early issues in the series are really going to be the toughest to read as they spend time trying to introduce and include tons of obscure characters that I couldn't care less about uh, just to basically establish their presence in the continuity of this big event taking place. It's boring. I don't care. And there was so much that I wanted to skip when I was reading this again recently. The vast majority of art panels and text in this series are ultimately irrelevant to the story of the crisis itself. Uh, It's just... uh, A ton of characters showing up to say, Hey, I'm here, I'm a part of this story, and I'm trying to help out. And that's about it. That's about all they do. Uh, It was agonizing to sit and try to read all 12 issues in one sitting. You just have to approach this as an exercise to satisfy your curiosity about a major event in D.C. history that is repeatedly referred back to. Um, But as a story itself... (laughs) All right, so let's start actually looking through uh, the trade paperback of Crisis on Infinite Earths, which uh, has been nicely uh, recolored from the original publication, digitally recolored, and they've done, done a pretty nice job. The art style still looks dated. Um, but starting uh, just at page 11, if you're watching the podcast version of this, go to YouTube and you can watch the video version to see the uh, the, the images, the the shots of the, the artwork itself. But I, I'm going to also just talk along so that uh, you can follow along even if you're not watching that. Um, so if we're looking first at page 11 in this big collection we see uh, an example of a, a more prevalent acceptance of theism, which was going on at this time, that just isn't uh, as, as common today. Um, and also familiarity with biblical ideas, you know. Uh, the, the opening words are, in the beginning there was only one, a single black infinitude. So, just starting with the phrase in the beginning uh, it, it calls back to, you know, a, a biblical concept that most people uh, are, I would say a lot of people are still familiar with today. Um, they may Maybe they don't know where that phrase comes from, they just know it's kind of like this, you know, phrase that uh, is saturated in in pop culture. Uh, but anyway, so that's just that's just one of many examples, and probably the the least of them that stands out to me. There's a reference later in the series to Jonah and the whale. There's a bunch of characters using the expression "Lord knows I tried to blah blah blah" or "Oh Lord, what are we gonna do?" Da, 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 or whatever. Like "Oh Lord, I can't believe this is happening." You know, so and that's just an interesting kind of uh, bit of. Uh, influence, I would say, of some form of, the at least the trappings of Christian culture on America that you could still, that, would, that was still more common in maybe the uh, 80s. That But I, I can't think, I can't remember the last time I heard someone, Christian or not, use the expression, Lord knows, blah, 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 or, oh, Lord, I can't believe blah, blah, or, you know, stuff like that. So, um... Alright, let's talk about the multiverse hypothesis, because that is really the the premise, uh, the foundational premise of this whole thing. I mean, in the, on the first page, uh, it says, you know, the, the darkness finally screamed as much in pain as in relief, and in that instant, a multiverse was born. Boom! and then you see all these fiery multiverses forming, a multiverse of worlds vibrating and replicating, and a multiverse that should have uh, that should have been one became many. So this is an idea that um, if I remember correctly was more popular uh, in the scientific realm before this story was written and then it just kind of eventually leaked its way down made its way to pop culture as is uh, often the case sometimes ideas that Uh, are prominent in the the scientific community, they they don't get to pop culture until much later as writers of, you know, fiction and stuff hear about these things, you know, Uh, not being experts themselves. They usually pick them up from popular journals or, you know, whatever. Um, And this was one that, like, by the time it was becoming popular, if I remember correctly, don't quote me on this, um, was less... Uh, prevalent in scientific circles, but it's made a little bit of a comeback in recent years, so it's still very much worth talking about. Um, The multiverse hypothesis is sometimes called on to explain how our universe could be so precisely fine-tuned for the existence of life, given just the incredible, ridiculous odds against the universe just randomly coming into being with the particular, necessary values needed to permit life anywhere in the universe. Now, in science fiction, the multiverse hypothesis is used primarily for fun, what if type stories that's how it's being used here or in the TV series fringe or you know any number of time travel stories but the concept uh, involves heavy speculation and lacks observable evidence. Outside of fiction, it's largely appealed to as a sort of attempted escape route to get away from the idea that an intelligence is responsible for the fine-tuning of the universe. It's a very weak and unsubstantiated concept that's fun in sci-fi, and it does get talked about by some of the popular-level talking heads from the scientific community that uh, often are saying things about metaphysics, which really this is getting into metaphysics, not physics and observable science anymore. So it's interesting to hear talking heads, uh, you know, that are, that show up on the Daily Show or wherever else, you know, uh, being interviewed and talking about this kind of stuff and giving it uh, weight. It's really, uh, really going outside of their area of expertise in terms of observable uh, science, you know. Um, so it's a very weak and unsubstantiated concept. That again is fun in science fiction, but it fails big time under real investigation. Um, For more info, I've included some links below the YouTube version of this uh, to a video and a transcript from reasonablefaith.org that are definitely worth checking out if you're interested in this particular topic. You can also take a deep dive at reasonablefaith.org by typing multiverse in the search field and combing through all the resources that show up. But for now, we're moving on. Uh, It was interesting to me that uh, the second page in, which is page 12 in the trade paperback, uh, Pariah says to himself... "'How much longer must I suffer for my sins?' Um, And he just, this whole page, there's kind of a vibe of him being this almost kind of prophetic type figure who's heralding, he shows up to herald the destruction of one entire universe after another, you know. Um, And so that would just be kind of another example of this kind of like biblically influenced uh, aspect going on in the writing at this time. Uh, If we go to page 14, there's a prime example of like, what was really hard about reading this. Ultraman, as he's trying to, you know, stop all this destruction from happening, says, I've changed the course of mighty oceans. Don't tell me my super strength can't save my adopted planet. <laughs> There is so much exposition crammed in there. So I've changed the course of Mighty Ocean. So that's something I've done in the past. It also says something about my strength. Uh, but just to solidify, don't tell me my super strength, which is italicized, can't save my adopted planet. Oh, so he's also from another planet. He's not a human. He's come here from... I mean, there's so many instances of this crammed in exposition Um, ...and people talking in the third person, you know, it's like, well, the maid of might is here to help out, you know, talking about herself, you know, (laughs) or whatever. Oof, it's rough. But as I adjust my expectations and prepare for that kind of writing, I find the expositional style a welcome middle ground between not knowing anything about anyone... And having to read a bunch of boring wiki entries, which if you really wanted to do, you could do that to familiarize yourself with a bunch of characters and concepts of the DC Universe instead of uh, doing this. So by all means, if that sounds good to you, then knock yourself out. Um, But you're going to appreciate, Pater, so many things about the DC Universe more if you read this first and think of it as a highly narrative 1980s DC encyclopedia rather than compelling uh, reading for its own sake there is a little bit of uh, uh, political and uh, philosophical theming going on in some of the writing uh, the ape king sullivar, oh man I hate, hate talking apes and monkeys and stuff uh, when sentencing a murderer on page 23 he uh, sentences him to conversion he says uh, man's justice demands an eye for an eye which he puts in quotes but we apes need not be so barbaric Uh, And then he sends him off to conversion, which I don't know what the crap that is. But evidently it's better than an eye for an eye, which I don't know if that's necessarily a a dig uh, against... You know, the biblical concept of an eye for an eye, which I should add, was for a particular time, for a particular people in the Old Testament law. That's not something that, uh, that we are, uh, that, that, it, that is for us as believers to apply to life and the government or, you know, uh, today necessarily. I, I also think it's interesting that he, that he refers to that as man's justice. I think it's probably less like a claim that the Bible is, you know, uh, the invention of man and more just kind of like a, an anti-death penalty. Statement that the writer just kind of wanted to stick in there or something i I really don't know it's it's weird <laughs> the influence of this work is still resonating today, even if you look at a movie like Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice the moment where the Flash appears to Batman and he's like desperate to tell him something, he seems to be in big trouble and Batman doesn't know what the crap is going on, and right on page 50 we see the origin of that uh, of that visual, where the Flash just appears out of nowhere and he first appears to Batman and he just seems to be in a desperate situation saying help me, help me, you know Uh, and Batman doesn't know what the heck is going on and so uh, that's kind of like an Iconic visual that has still been repeated. It's repeated in later stories. Every time there's kind of a crisis going on in the DC Universe, um, like a big, huge event, there very often is a uh, the the Flash is playing a major role. Uh, So that and that all started here. The visual design for the Big Bad, the Anti-Monitor, still holds up really well for me. It's just kind of a creepy, almost like a weird zombie type vibe, but uh, I'm sure it was influenced by Darth Vader, this kind of like look of someone who's decaying and dying, but also surrounded by metal and technology and stuff. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it, it's a look that for the most part still holds up for me. It's just like weird and, and disturbing. I really like it. But here's the secret now to this series. Uh, you don't have to read almost half of it. You can just start reading about halfway through on page, I don't know, 180, 181 maybe, uh, up through the middle of 190, because right there, halfway through this series, you get nine and a half pages that basically gives the background of the entire crisis, uh, because it's really not explained largely up to this point. You get the origins of the Monitor and the Anti-Monitor. You get a recap of the actual story events of Crisis on Infinite Earths. You can start right here in this issue. The single issue is, I want to say, is it number six? Five or six or something like that? I can't remember. It's going to be much more expensive to get the single issues anyway, but around 180 of the trade paperback. The first six issues lack most of the vital info presented right here issues one through six are largely about the world mysteriously going to crap and heroes and villains showing up uh to basically say i'm here and this is my name and these are my powers and i'm here to help fight this because i'm a hero or i'm here and i'm a villain and these are my powers um but and i grudgingly have to help because my world will be destroyed even if i don't mind these heroes dying it's just kind of like a a glorified roll call of the dc universe for six issues for half of this series At this point, most of the roll call character introductions uh, are done, and the story actually starts to move forward a little bit. It's a smaller group of key characters that slowly become more and more of the focus at this point. More recognizable characters gradually become the focus of of issues 6 through 12. Um if only for their, well, I would say issues 6 through 12 in general are just stronger, um, if only for their earth-shattering events and character deaths. It's not that the story becomes much more compelling, but, like, the events become more major and notable. Uh, and also, Peter, you're going to be a big Flash fan, which just means that this story is freaking plain unmissable from here going forward. And as a great example of this thing really starting to breathe, you know, we've got this massive showdown where, like, these major characters like Superman of Earth 2, Supergirl, Superman of Earth 1, Wonder Woman, Captain Adam, who has a very different uh, look and costume than he did um, just a few years after this, Captain Marvel, the original Green Lantern, Martian Manhunter, Firestorm, so lots of these major characters are coming to the antimatter universe to do battle with the Anti-Monitor. And for the first time on pages 196 and 197, There's this massive splash page That has not been done before I mean prior to this There were so many panels on each page And so much dialogue and text Crammed into each of those panels Finally it's starting to breathe a little bit And this is actually a really cool visual I think that the design of the weird gray rocky environment that looks kind of naturally grown but at the same time built and buildings that are crumbled or growing out of the rock or something it's and in the background you got this black space and all the stars that fill the 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 sky are like red or pink you know so it's just kind of got this striking look to it that still holds up for me today and is i still really enjoy looking at that splash page Now, as I said, there are going to be spoilers, and here's one of the big ones. Supergirl dies, Uh, and on page 209, we've got her dying words that really, I think, represent uh, well the transition into a post-Christian American culture. I mean, she still uses the expression, heaven knows, uh, which, heaven knows, I've tried da-da-da-da, you know, Uh, let me just read some of this here. She sees Superman get wounded by the anti-monitor, and she, like, comes to fight and protect her cousin, and she's like, uh, He'll be alive. He has to be. But if he's not, I swear I'll carry on for him. These, these are thought bubbles, by the way. I may never be as good as he is, but Cal always taught me to do my best. Nothing else matters. Be true to yourself. Be the best you are able to. Don't ever give anything but your best. I've lived with this ideal, and heaven knows I've tried my hardest to live up to it. And I think for the most part, I have. These are all like... <laughs> crammed into uh arguably one panel you could maybe say three because there's panels within panels and stuff but these are all the thoughts that are racing through her mind as she is on this massive collision course to slam into the anti-monitor uh it's just it's weird it's weird to me and multiple times they're really trying to give her the hero's death because on 207 she sees that her cousin's in trouble and the the uh the narration boxes read and supergirl rushes ahead knowing full well that whatever could bring such pain to her her powerful cousin could certainly destroy her but supergirl is a hero and her concerns are not for herself but for the one she loves and that is like restated i don't know how many times she's like punching the anti-monitor again and again and dr light is this kind of super villain that's kind of becoming a superhero she's watching this happen and she says supergirl doesn't stop she keeps hitting him fighting him as if she doesn't care about herself at all (laughs) And then on the next page, she's still pummeling the answer monitor. Dr. Light is still watching. It says, "She, She is a hero, totally selfless and concerned only with others, while I have wasted away my life with selfishness. No more, Supergirl. No more. Whatever happens here, you've shown me the truth. Oh, man. So anyway, it feels like a really heavy-handed attempt to give her... Uh, the hero's death, but she does say some interesting things in there, you know, like she says heaven knows, which is an interesting kind of like smell of cultural Christianity, but she also has this bit about being true to yourself as a motto, and that's the thing that she's lived by, you know, Uh, and that has certainly survived today as like a motto that many people hold as like a a high value, you got to be true to yourself, I'm just being true to myself, you know, and it's really a weird expression, I mean, being Authentic is good, if that's what it means. We shouldn't be fake with each other, but should we not aspire to change from who we are and be different and better than who we are today? Should, like, a serial killer just be true to themselves? (laughs) Anyway, there are little bits of, like, uh, philosophical value statements being made throughout this series dealing with things like the morality of killing and when it's right or not right to kill someone. But the writing style is so melodramatic that it doesn't really stick, I don't think, and, and likely won't get today's readers thinking at all about this, these kinds of things as, as moral issues. Now, after the issues dealing with the final fates of Supergirl and The Flash, you can start skimming until you see panels that start to get a little bigger again. That's when the story events are actually starting to happen once more. Uh, The rest is mostly more character roll calls and side conflicts that don't affect the forward motion of the overall story. It's right around page maybe 278 when the Spectre appears. That's when you can start paying attention again. He's got this great entrance where he's stopping the anti-monitor just when it looks like the anti-monitor is unstoppable. You bring in the Spectre, of course, the agent of God's wrath, to do battle with this seemingly omnipotent foe. And on 295, he's like, the Spectre is not only using his own powers, whatever their level might be, uh, but he's also channeling powers from, like, all these mystical characters of the DC Universe. The description reads, the energy explodes inside him. It rips through his being, into his mind, through each and every atom Uh, Well, I don't know if he's a spiritual, non-tangible being, I don't know if he has atoms, but anyway, the specter screams in pain. He is a funnel, a conduit. More energy pours into him. More power funnels through him. He sees worlds that have never existed and never will. He sees shapes and colors and patterns and then in bold, and concepts undreamt of even by his master. Well, that's interesting. That, I think, kind of betrays a, a very limited view of God. First off, we arguably could say, okay, well, undreamt of, well, does God dream? That's kind of a verbi type thing. Does God have sequential thoughts limited to time? Or does he just know, intrinsic to his being, all uh, all truths? Or at least propositional truths, I don't know, you, that's a philosophical discussion. But even setting that aside, uh, if God is all-knowing, that means he's going to know all future thoughts of all beings. So if the specter was one, at one time eventually going to see shapes and colors and patterns and concepts, then God would have foreknown what those concepts and thoughts were. So uh, it, it's, it's a, a limited view of God that also uh, kind of like restricts him temporally. And I think what the writer's doing is not necessarily making, trying to make, you know, kind of theological statements. I think he's just searching for, if this is a speculation on my part, searching for just big language. Big language that can describe these these moments that are getting bigger and bigger and bigger all the time. I mean, this is such an epic uh, story and concept that you have to really kind of inflate the language uh, so that it can continue. The stakes can continue to be raised and be bigger and more epic and stuff. Problem is when you go that route, eventually, uh words are gonna fail and you're gonna start saying things that are nonsensical. So after that big knockdown, drag out fight between the anti-monitor and the specter, we have the merging of the five parallel worlds that still existed at that point. There were like thousands and they all got all got whittled down over the course of the first six issues or whatever. And then we've only got the five left. Big knockdown, drag out battle, and blah 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 blah, sci-fi techno babble. There's only one left, and these five Parallel universes have been merged into a single continuity with certain elements being deleted and others crammed together to make one single continuity. The problem with that is that there are characters who cease to exist. In fact, they cease to have ever existed. Their entire timeline has been wiped out. But some characters uh, still live that were at the dawn of time with this big knockdown, down drag-out fight between the Anti-Monitor and the Spectre. So you've got a situation... Where, say, for example, and this is the key example here, the Superman of Earth 2, and that's the Superman that represents Superman starting to exist as a character in the late 30s, and so by 1985, he had, like, you know, gray temples and stuff, so this is the original Superman, uh... His lowest is gone. He's the Earth-2 Superman. By this time, he was kind of like relegated as a, to like a secondary version of Superman, and they had a few years before brought this younger version of Superman, which we would probably consider to be our current Superman. But we got this Earth-2, which you know, arguably should be called Earth-1 Superman, Uh, Earth-2 Superman survives this merging of universes, but Lois does not. And so there's a moment where he expresses his grief, but the problem is it's so crunched and melodramatic on page 312. He's just bursting into the air, just raging against the sky. Um and says, but my wife, my Lois, she's gone, never was, no, this is unfair, why was I kept alive when Lois vanished, why did I go back in time instead of staying here, instead of entering oblivion with my wife, you know, so it's all just a little bit too talky, where I think in a comic book today, they wouldn't necessarily go all the way to portraying it in the way you would in a movie, With which, if this was happening in a movie, if they did a movie about this, I think he would maybe scream and cry and collapse, but he would do a lot less talking, you know? So there's just a whole lot of talking going on in portraying these kinds of things in a way that just kind of feels uh, detached and, and, uh, and melodramatic. Now, after all these continuities merge, things do start to slow down again, unfortunately. There's some more roll calling going on and some new status quos getting established, including, like, some subplot setups that are presumably resolved in individual hero titles after this event series is done. Like, on page 316, Dr. Fate is talking to the character Amethyst, who something happens to her, she becomes blind, and he's trying to help her, and, he's, and he says, "'By the Fates,' as he looks into her eyes, "'What is it I see in you? It is impossible!' And then there's no more talk about that uh, at all. (laughs) So I'm guessing maybe there was a series called Dr. Fate and Amethyst after this that picked up that thread and and kept running with it. So there's little bits like that that's just kind of like clogging things up for a modern reading of this today, which is a little bit unfortunate. It's also still inconsistent when all is said and done um, in in terms of what memories and continuities of parallel Earths actually carry over into the single continuity that remains when Crisis on Infinite Earths is done. For example, Lex Luthor, after the merge of universes, is seen in one of these uh, final issues of Crisis on Infinite Earths as uh, fully bald and physically fit, but in prison. But his new status quo in in DC Comics, very soon after uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths finished being published is that of a fat ceo who is mostly bald or balding but still has some red hair and is definitely not in prison but is instead this untouchable corporate businessman and i don't know of any explanation for why he was one way after the merge of all the universes in the pages of, F- of crisis on infinite earths and then something very different when we see him get again just a little bit later in the uh, mainstream dc superman stories on the first page of the final issue, they finally seem to figure out a better way to quickly introduce characters without having them talk about themselves and, uh, you know, expositionally refer to themselves in the third person. Uh, they're using more like a, of these kind of like little boxes that just give a quick description of their name, who you know, and their powers or their name and where, what they're from or what they're known for or whatever, you know. And I really wish they would have done that earlier, but okay, it's, you know, it was, it was a different time. I haven't commented up to this point. You know, I haven't talked about the story much, and I, I do plan to do that more in future uh, Essential Issues segments, but there's not much story to talk about. That's the thing. I mean, there are things that happen, but uh, it's not much of... It's certainly not, like, very character-driven. It's not the type of story I'm usually going to have all kinds of things to talk about. Uh, it's a weird animal. So uh, forgive me if, if you know, if this is a little bit... Uh, you're you're waiting for me to talk more about well what happened in the story? Well, not a lot happens in this story, just like it's like a big disaster movie, and everyone's just running around trying trying to survive and then you get a little bit of story here and there um Let's see here. The Anti-Monitor, on the subject of story, is, I think, the most powerful villain the DC Universe has ever faced. Probably the most powerful villain they will ever face unless things inflate to, like, a crazy, complicated multiverse again and they gotta clean it up and need a villain to do the job. Um, So he's the most powerful villain of the DC Universe history, but still really just an embodiment of evil. He's a plot device. He's uh, an epic threat as a plot device um, and seemingly unstoppable but he's not a character with any interesting motives, so that's a little unfortunate. Uh, thankfully, though, for my taste, he does have a uh, a cool look. Uh, so I don't know what the, I don't know if that fixes the it doesn't fix the problem, <laughs> but, <laughs> it's nice. On 338, we've got a a touch of relativism, which is really required to make diverse power sources work. Uh, If you've got a bunch of mystical characters and they're all coming from different, they're all taking inspiration from different world religions or philosophies and stuff like that, you get them all in the same room, you got to figure out, okay, well, which one of these is true? Because if you go to the source material that these things are based on, the truth, the real world religions or philosophies or whatever, they all contain truth claims That in some way, at some point, are exclusive and rule out the truth of some other system of belief. And yet, when you bring them together in a story like this, uh, they're all doing the hamina-hamina, putting their hands out and making their mystic powers work. One of the mystical characters, as they're joining their powers, says, All pleas for success are welcome, Johnny Thunder. Referring to prayer. Uh, I, who deal with arcane arts of sorcery, understand the need for such prayers and incantations. Yeah, okay, well just, yeah, prayers, incantations, whatever you got. We're gonna pull it all together somehow. It then says, The incantation they make is a silent one, each calling on his own source of power, each summoning his own belief beliefs and acting as the nexus the link between all are dr occult and green lantern so yeah it's all just spiritual mystical energy and we're just gonna throw it in the same pot and uh have dr occult and green lantern manage that <laughs> and i should add it's the original Earth to uh, Green Lantern, Alan Scott, who was more of a mystical character than the sci-fi, you know, Hal Jordan idea. Closing in on the end here, page 341, uh, we see Wally West come across the costume of Barry Allen, the Flash, and realizing that he is dead. A little bit more melodramatic stuff. Uh, they, a character shows him the, the ring that the Flash keeps his costume in and says, a ring with some sort of lightning insignia on it. Does this mean anything to you? And Wally says, his Flash ring where he kept his universe until he... he, See, uniform, sorry. Kept his uniform. Who knows, with a story like this? Where he kept his uniform until he needed it. It really is over now, isn't it? Oh, Lord, Barry, I'll miss you. Oh, how I'll miss you. (laughs) I don't know how to read that and make it sound uh, grounded in reality at all. Um, So it's just kind of an interesting thing that you gotta put up with if you're gonna read this story. But I think... The reason for a lot of that was that the target audience at this time for comics was still primarily children and teenagers. Um, It wasn't until, you know, a decade or two later that it really became much more of like a Um, a a young adult and and an aging adult kind of medium that is is still aiming to get kids too, but I I would say most comic book readers are grown men, you know, they're like in their uh, 20s, 30s, 40s and older. So given that fact, given the audience that they were aiming for at this time, it's actually pretty impressive that they dealt with as much death and darkness as they did in this story. Now on page 360, there's a pivotal moment that I think was just intended to be a sweet Epilogue for a few characters, but it's actually foundational to a major DC event that would be published decades later, called Infinite Crisis, which serves as a sort of sequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths. And I, I'm definitely going to be featuring that at some point in my Essential Issues series. But what we have here is uh, Superman of Earth Two stayed behind to fight antimatter when everyone else basically had to leave this collapsing antimatter universe. Along with him is Superboy Prime, who was briefly introduced to the DC universe right. Right before Christ is on Infinite Earths, he's basically just a a kid from a world that's just like ours, and he discovers that he is like, I don't don't remember the gist of it. I think he discovers that he has superpowers, like he's reading Superman comic books and then he realizes he has powers like Superman or something, I don't know, but he's the only, he's basically Superboy uh, and on a planet where there are no other superheroes, but he finds his way into this whole conflict and so that's all you really need to know (laughs) about him. So Superboy Prime from Earth Prime is also here at the end uh, with Alexander Luther from Earth 3. Uh, That's a whole thing that uh, you can learn about Alexander Luther if you really want to by reading Crisis on Infinite Earths. Anyway, so Anti-Monitor's defeated. Superman of Earth 2 is like, ugh, but what am I supposed to do? I'm just ready to die now because I lost my Lois. Well, Alexander Luther shows up and he's, you know, Mr... I have the power that any writer, that the writers, any power the writers want to give me, I can have. And so he shows up and says, "Hey, I actually saved Lois right before the merging of the continuities. Uh, and so here now, you can come and be with me. I'll take you to a safe place." Lois, coming out of him, says to uh, Superman of Earth, 2, I, I was inside him, Clark, in a place that was so beautiful." Alexander Luther says, "I can't take you back to Earth, but I am a tunnel into that other place. Come into me. We will all go there. We can." And then a. Uh, Uh, Clark says we can be there to get we can be together always she says I want to be wherever you are I'm coming too. better to go into the unknown than die here alone says Superboy Prime and then Alexander Luther says do not worry young Superboy where we go now there will be no fear only peace everlasting peace. And so I think it's supposed to be giving off kind of like this heaven vibe, you know, this is kind of like the way we can see them dying without really seeing them dying, you know, and oh, they've gone off to uh, to eternal peace and stuff. And it is kind of interesting, it's like, well, how does Alexander Luther have access to wherever this place is? Is this place heaven? I think they just wanted to stay away from those things and just be really vague about it, I get it. But what's interesting is that although this is supposed to be this kind of bittersweet closure to the original Superman, uh, who's been around since 1938, it actually, this whole plot point, this little teeny closing bit, it actually becomes the premise for Infinite Crisis, which again would be published decades later, and they take this in a very different direction, which I found really interesting, and that... um, Made more sense than this moment did here. Uh, so anyway, yeah, uh, that's, that's definitely something that's noteworthy. Finally, on page 362, we have the origin of Wally West, Kid Flash, going from Kid Flash to The Flash. This was something that, as a Flash fan, when I came on board with the Flash, it it was already Wally West. I'd heard about Barry Allen. I was watching the TV show. I was like, this is Barry Allen. Who's this Wally West guy? What the crap is... He used to be Kid Flash? How did he become Flash? Where's Barry Allen? So, like, there's just some major changes that happened, especially in the Flash continuity, that happened here in Crisis on Infinite Earths. And so reading this story just answers those questions. You're just seeing in this story... um some major changes in DC continuity. This story was um, conceived before, but not published before, the big Marvel crossover event, which I think was called Secret Wars or Secret War. I can't remember. There was one that later uh, was one or the other, and then there was one that was published just before Crisis on Infinite Earths. This one, this series was announced uh, well before Secret Wars, but it took them like four or five years to do all the research required in order to make this story happen. It was much more complex from a publishing standpoint. It was so much more of an achievement than say like, uh, the, the Marvel crossover story or any crossover story that's taken place since then, whether in the DC universe or elsewhere. I, I think part of the key to enjoying this today is to read it while trying to place yourself in the the mid 80s mentally trying to place yourself there a crossover on this scale had never been done before in comics or had these kinds of massive effects on continuity that are constantly referred back to you know in, for decades afterward um dc at this point in the years leading up to this uh, crisis on Infinite earth's event had purchased various properties from failing publishing comic book companies and and they'd created divergent timelines to explain how these characters like the captain marvel characters and blue beetle and stuff were suddenly interacting with dc characters so they came up with the idea of these multiple universes in order to explain how they were accumulating this mess of uh characters from other companies and uh, and so there were all these parallel realities for fans to try to keep track of it was a nightmare to try and introduce new fans to the dc universe at this time um so this was an event that was basically dc cleaning house and doing so with a number of brutal shocking decisions about who would live who would die and what continuity would be changed forever it's a major piece of not just dc continuity history but comic book publishing history um Maybe starting with this story, as you're diving into the DC Universe, isn't the best idea. But, Peter, as you get deeper into the major events of the DC Universe, this story will increasingly be referred to. It will only be a matter of time before your curiosity becomes great enough that you're really going to want to read Crisis on Infinite Earths. Okay, well, at this point, as I'm recording, you can get the digitally recolored trade paperback of the entire Crisis on Infinite Earths 12-issue series for about $24 new, and that does include shipping, or as low as about $8 used, which also includes uh, shipping in that. Um, So, uh, there you have it. That's it for now. Uh, Stay tuned, as on the next Essential Issues, I'll be talking about an essential DC Comics story that I still like to sit down and read today. I want to remind you guys to go check out the other members of the Christian Geek Central Network, such as the Strangers and Aliens podcast, the Theology Gaming podcast, the Untold podcast, P.O.S.T.O.S. Helix Reviews, and the Retro Rewind podcast. For more, 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 more information about the CGC network, visit ChristianGeekCentral.com.
2: Hello all. This is Katja from the Netherlands. Communicate on the forums with another of my audiobook shorts, audiobook reviews that I am trying to keep as short as I can. This time the novella that I am reviewing is called The Dispatcher. Sometimes you just want to listen to something nice for about 2-3 hours. You don't feel like a podcast or some audio course, and who listens to talk radio anymore? no, you really want an audiobook, you just want a finished story this time. It's for occasions like these that there are the really, really short audiobooks. Last week I listened to a great find in this category called The Dispatcher. It's written by John Scalzi, narrated by Zachary Kinto, yes, the one and only. The unabridged version of this audio novella will take you only two hours and 19 minutes to finish. The publisher's summary reads, Zachary Kinto, best known for his role as a Nimoy-approved Spock in the recent Star Trek reboot and the menacing power-stealing serial killer Sylar in Heroes, brings his well-earned sci-fi credentials and simmering intensity to this audio-exclusive novella from master storyteller John Scalzi. One day, not long from now, it becomes almost impossible to murder anyone. 999 times out of a thousand, anyone who is intentionally killed comes back. How? We don't know, but it changes everything war, crime and daily life. Tony Valdez is a dispatcher, a licensed bonded professional whose job is to humanely dispatch those whose circumstances put them in death's crosshairs so they can have a second chance to avoid the reaper. But when a fellow dispatcher and former friend is apparently kidnapped, Tony learns that there are some things that are worse than death and that some people are ready to do almost anything to avenge a supposed wrong. It's a race against time for Valdez to find his friend before it's too late, before not even a dispatcher can save him. My thoughts. This is a lovely palate cleanser between giant sagas and other enormous works of fiction with a very original main premise to begin with the author succeeds in turning the story into an interesting whodunit the atmosphere reminded me of a nineteen forties black-and-white murder mystery complete with a set of rather two-d characters that are however archetypal enough to pull you into the story Archetypal and yet still 21st century as well, with a protagonist whose shady morals are only somewhat uncovered as the story unfolds, and cleverly leaves the rest to the listener's imagination. Also not very last century is the main character's somewhat unwilling partnering with a slightly manipulative but sympathetic nonetheless female police detective. Think Misty in Marvel's recent TV series Luke Cage. It is not the most exciting of stories I've ever read or listened to, nor did it keep me glued to my couch. Nevertheless, the narrator is what makes this novella a great listen. Not only would Kinto's voice make virtually any book enjoyable, he also employs some of his acting skills to give you different character voices and, more importantly, different emotions. That was a real treat." All in all, I enjoyed this down-to-earth murder mystery in its subtly present contemporary sci-fi setting enough to recommend it. However, for me personally, it would not have been worth full price. It's really too short for that. So thank you for listening, guys. Let me know what you think on the Christian Geek Central Forums or on my blog, which is comicsandgadgets.wordpress.com. Thank you for listening, bye-bye, and tot de volgende keer! Data collection complete. Activating using 1.0. <laughs>
0: Just a reminder, guys, the summer of free is coming very soon, and I could really use your suggestions of free geek entertainment options. 100% free, 100% legal, meaning no gray areas or questions about, I don't know, is this right or wrong or legal or not legal? 100% no questions asked. Free and legal. You can send me your ideas at P A E T E R at spiritblade.com. This week at youtube.com slash Christian Geek Central, I've posted the uh, spec faith. Video, The Speculative Faith video, Writing Supernatural Stories. I shared the audio from that on the podcast last week. The video version is up now. Um, as well as part one of my uh, what do you call it I almost called it my highlights series but the last live stream I did part one of the last live stream I did this time around I'm trying something a little bit different and I explain you know what I'm doing different this time around at the beginning of the video so you can check it out but uh, topics on that include Dragon Quest Builders which I'm playing and really enjoying I also chat for a little bit about comic books specifically DC and Marvel and then also I talk a little bit about the Vikings TV series and all kinds of other bits of blabbing that I do hanging out with you guys Uh, so again that's at youtube.com slash christian Geek central um what else what else what else oh yeah um i the the uh, journal entries went out to spirit blade insiders just this uh, last week wow april had some big ups and frustrating downs i Enjoyed some time off celebrating my 40th birthday And then I returned to Some big frustrations related to Technical problems with the podcast which I alluded To a little bit uh, on An episode of the podcast but oh man I did not nearly go Into my feelings on the subject Like I do in these journal entries Um, In this month's collection of Journal entries you can hear about two new Ideas for YouTube shows uh, one of Which has launched already Essential Issues And I talk about kind of the genesis of that a little bit As well as another uh, YouTube series I'm really thinking about creating that I have not talked about openly at all yet Um, and then also I give an update on the progress for the Storyteller series of uh, Bible book adaptations. Um, I've also started recording these journal entries as videos with timestamps, so you can jump to the topics that interest you each month. This month's topics include uh, vacation plans and escaping stressors, Storyteller production plans, iTunes hate and podcast frustrations uh, new YouTube series ideas, learning how to hope in God, which is something I was processing and trying to work with kids at home. Oh my gosh. Um... Yeah, one of those new, one of those new YouTube series ideas. The one I haven't talked about yet is musical in nature. So I don't know if that piques your curiosity or if you just don't care at all, and that's fine. Um, I think I'm going to keep going with this video format, but if you prefer the audio only version, insiders still get that each month as well. So the choice is yours. Uh, I want to th- again thank each of the Spirit Blade insiders for your tangible support of my work. You guys are changing my work from mere ideas into reality. So I'm so grateful for that. Uh, Uh, From the very beginning of this ministry over 10 years ago, I committed to serving what would likely be, I knew, a small crowd. Um, Despite the illusion of geek culture going mainstream, being a genuine geek by definition is outside of the mainstream it 's a small, neglected minority that uh, that i 'm primarily trying to minister to. I always enjoy everybody else that comes along for the ride as well uh, but uh, but but in, in my heart i 'm like I want to make sure i 'm reaching out uh, to to this neglected minority that I have in mind, uh, and that means that consumer volume will likely never support this work through like ad revenue or or my audio drama sales. Uh, instead, what I really need are, are supporters like Spirit Blade insiders who are now the primary consistent source of financial support for the endeavors of Christian Geek Central and Spirit Blade Productions. So for more info about becoming a Spirit Blade Insider, you can visit our about page over at spiritblade.com, and I'd be really grateful if you'd consider doing that. All right, that's enough of that. Moving on. The truth will set you free. Truth is that which corresponds to fact or reality. To assert that truth is not absolute is a self-defeating Proposition. Now lots of things are possible, but our beliefs should reflect the best explanation of the available evidence. I'm no expert, but the information is out there. You'd be amazed what you can learn if you spend some time in search of truth. The truth. Right now I'm gonna to attempt to examine the Bible. <laughs> And uh, dissect some of the churchy languages that we can often take for granted, digging into history and languages as I'm able to try and get at the heart of the text so we can hopefully see and apply at least some of what God has for us in these words today. Now, I'm not formally trained in scripture. I'm just a guy using resources and a questioning mind to try and get at the truth, and that's something that we can all do, so I hope you'll do that with me. This time we're looking at the idea of fighting our true enemies. This is part three of our time spent on that theme, and we've been looking at Ephesians chapter 6. We've arrived now at verses 16 through what I would call 18a, the first half of uh, verse 18, and then we'll start with the second half of verse 18 next time. In the ESV, those verses read, "...in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God." Praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication. In verses 10 through 12 of chapter 6, we learned that our truest enemies in this life are not people, but Satan and his demonic allies, who primarily work uh, not necessarily to hurt us, although that can sometimes be a means to their end, but primarily to derail us from being aligned with God's purposes. Beginning in verse 13, using the metaphor of a soldier's equipment, Paul identifies the tactics we need to deploy in order to resist and push back against the efforts of our true enemy. Verse 16 again says, "...in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one." The New Testament Greek word for faith, as I've mentioned before on the the Christian Geek Central podcast, or as it was at the time I pray I last mentioned at the Spirit Blade Underground podcast, um, the New Testament Greek word for faith does not refer to a blind belief in something, but it is the conviction that something is true and contains the idea of trust. Um, Notice that truth is is the more foundational piece of armor, as we observed from the metaphor last time. But simply affirming intellectually that something is true is different from trusting in that truth. For example, we can affirm that someone is a qualified and respected surgeon, but we aren't exercising faith in them until we let them put us or someone we care about under their scalpel. We can give all kinds of quote-unquote right answers about what we believe when someone asks us, "What, what do you believe about A, B, and C? But knowing those right answers isn't going to do anything for us when the fiery arrows of our true enemy are hammering down. To survive that onslaught without being crippled or diverted from our purpose, we'll need to trust that the truth is actually real. What specific truths we need to trust in are going to vary depending on the kinds of arrows that are coming down on us. And since we're not likely to hear and receive truth well from others when we're in the middle of the battle, we need to equip this piece of armor before the fight begins, or as soon as we experience the next lull in combat. This is why having a regular habit in the Bible is so important, and not just reading it to gain familiarity... Uh, or studying it to gain understanding, but contemplating it and meditating on it. We need to wrestle with these words. Admit to ourselves which parts we have trouble believing. Uh, share those areas of doubt with other believers confess and express to god what we're struggling with in his word and then chase down answers to those questions that keep us up at night instead of just simply ignoring them or letting them gnaw at us and erode our faith equipping the shield of faith is not simply an intellectual or mental exercise of the will it's the hard work of confronting our heart and our doubt those arrows are still going to come. Our circumstances may not change, and Jesus promised us that we'd have trouble in this life. But there are things we can do to keep the arrows from wounding us in the same way, to the same degree that they did before uh, we really started investing in the Bible and wrestling with the truth claims that it makes. Uh, Verse 17 says, "...and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God." The New Testament Greek word translated as salvation. I've also mentioned this before, but just by way of reminder and for those who are new, um, this is a context sensitive word. It basically just means rescue and translated in its basic sense and just just literally rescue uh, but it's context sensitive it can refer to rescue from God's judgment which we deserve and when we're rescued from that we are justified before God that's that's justification salvation um, it can refer to rescue from sinful habits and tendencies that we have that's uh, what theologians call sanctification salvation um, and it can also refer to ultimate rescue from any present of evil within or around us. That's what theologians call glorification, salvation. Or it can actually mean any combination of those three, including all of them at once. So we just need to pay attention uh, and try to figure out from the context uh, which one or ones uh, are, are being thought of uh, in, in the use of the word salvation. In 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Paul uses a similar metaphor, but specifically refers to equipping a helmet representing the hope Of salvation, which would maybe um, refer to not justification, which has already been done, but the promise of glorification, or maybe even the promise of sanctification in this life. Um, The sword of the spirit is the only offensive weapon listed. It's defined as the word of God, using an unusual Greek phrase that translates literally to divine utterance or words that come from God. Because that Greek phrase is a bit unique here, there has been some question and discussion among scholars about what the Word of God specifically refers to here. You know, is it the gospel message? Uh, Is it particular words provided by the Spirit uh, for a given moment? Um, Is it the sayings of Jesus, or is it just written scripture in general? I side with those who conclude that it refers to written scripture. The reasoning being that in our chief example of Jesus doing spiritual uh, battle during his desert temptation facing Satan, he repeatedly quoted scripture in order to counter the lies being presented to him by the enemy. What's interesting to me about the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit is that we are told to take them, uh, using a word that translates to receive. Uh, In previous verses, the Greek translates to take up when referring to the equipment that we should arm ourselves with, Uh, take up this and that. Um, The focus in those previous verses is more on our initiative. But here, when it comes to our rescue in its various forms, or when it comes to finding offensive power in scripture, the focus is on receiving Uh, We experience rescue in its various forms only when we stop depending on our own strength. And scripture becomes an effective spiritual weapon when we receive it into our own hearts first rather than simply memorizing it and quoting it and then tossing it back out there at whatever situation we're facing. It really uh, has power as we uh, willingly receive it uh, into ourselves and our minds and, and our hearts and how just we think of life our our perspective all those things um okay verse 18 now 18a i should say praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication um prayer is not actually one of the equipment items listed here it kind of comes at the end of this list but it is something we need to do still at all times both on and off the spiritual battlefield Uh, the call here is for prayer in a broad sense but then it also specifies and emphasizes supplication or requests to God, which assumes a recognition of his power and his authority, um, that he is able to affect change in our circumstances or bring power to bear for us. Um, our prayer should also be in the Spirit, meaning that when we pray, our aim should be to both rely on the Holy Spirit and be in line with his will, which again, Calls back, I think, to the Bible. If we want to understand what the will of God is, what the what the the Spirit is willing for the moment, then spending time in His Word helps us to understand His character, the things that He cares about, the things that He um, generally prioritizes as you know f- for us in life, and that can give us a clearer, a much clearer indication of. What his particular will is for us in the moment um, Because there's almost always a general revelation of his general will That applies to the individual moment um, So what's in all this for geeks, we might ask Well, One of my pet peeves that I thought about while, while looking at this passage Uh, One of my pet peeves in exorcism stories, specifically, is that the Bible is often treated like a spell book. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. There's an emphasis on kind of loud, repetitious quoting or even chanting of Bible verses. Sometimes even in Latin, instead of that person's, you know, native, comfortable language. Uh, Likewise, when we think about spiritual warfare, I think it can be easy to think that it depends so much on us and our strength of will in the moment. Now, don't get me wrong, our will is a vital component. Scripture tells us how to do battle and we have to engage our wills and choose to obey and engage in the conflict. But spiritual battles are not won because we conjure up determination in the moment. They are won when we trust in what God has said to us, what we've given Him time to say to us before we find ourselves on the battlefield. Um, The war is won because of how we handle peacetime. Uh, That's not to say God can't bring us victory even when we haven't prepared, but God is telling us here that the norm for success in our spiritual battles requires a mode of living receptively with him off the battlefield that will help make us ready. Uh, We need to give him permission to invade our hearts and get into our business through his word and through the people we allow to speak his word to us so that we can be ready when the fight begins. Feedback. Give me your thoughts on this podcast, Christian Geek Central, the YouTube channel, or uh, anything else we're doing. What should we keep? What should we change? Or what's on your mind you'd like a potentially uninformed opinion on? We want to make this show and all of Christian Geek Central as fun and useful as we can, but uh, I need to hear from you to do that. You can send an email or audio file recorded on your phone to P A E T E R at Spiritblade.com. And as always, guys, if you'd like some help finding a good church, in your area, I wanna help you if I can. Online resources and communities are a good supplement. But by nature, they just can't speak to your particular situation, like relationships in a local church can. The context for almost everything in the New Testament assumes that we are serving and building purposeful relationships in a local church. So whether you're in a church already, but it just kind of lacks Bible-based intentionality, or you're not attending any church at all, if I can help you get connected to an authentic Bible-oriented church, I really want to do that. You can email me again at p-a-e-t-e-r at spiritblade.com, and we can just try to look at some websites of churches in your area together. Uh, I want to thank Katya from the Netherlands for that audiobook review. Thank you very much, Katya. Stay tuned, guys, for DS9 shawarma after the credits or jump back to episode 400 if you want to start from the beginning. As a reminder, you can find episodes 0 through 500 of this podcast archived as the Spirit Blade Underground podcast at spiritblade.com. Next week, if God allows it, I'll share more blips and bloops from the Christian Geek Radar. Um, I'll share more essential issues from DC Comics history and I'm not sure yet but maybe I'll share some thoughts on the video game Conan Exiles that's still a bit up in the air but anyway till then please consider supporting the work of Christian Geek Central and Spirit Blade Productions by purchasing an audio drama, leaving a donation or as I said before becoming a Spirit Blade Insider. You can get more information from our about page at spiritblade.com. Thank you guys so much for making time for this little show. Uh, I hope each of you have a great week and that you'll join me next time here on the Christian Geek Central podcast as we continue to geek out and seek the truth and hey, happy Star Wars Day, or as I guess I'm supposed to say, live long and prosper The Christian Geek Central podcast is a community-supported
1: endeavor of Spirit Blade Productions This podcast is produced by Peter Fremson with support from the Christian Geek Central community at ChristianGeekCentral.com for information about the latest entertainment and resources from Spirit Blade Productions, visit SpiritBlade.com. Thank you for listening. Something's coming through the wormhole.
2: The Dominion has endured for 2,000 years and will Continue to endure long after the Federation has crumbled into
0: dust. No!
2: Five years ago, no one had ever heard Bejor or Deep Space Nine, and now all our hopes rest here.
3: And that was Rapture. Uh, that was a pretty good episode. Yeah. Um, uh, this was all about uh, Cisco as the emissary, and if you'll remember the the prophets who are the gods of the bajorans they live inside the wormhole to the other side of the galaxy and they picked him as their emissary their representative to the they live outside they live outside normal time and so he's sort of like their representative to the world of linear time and he's also a religious icon to the to the bajorans which he often has resisted but <coughs> excuse me um well, late
1: he's been embracing more and yeah
3: more uh ever since uh the middle of season four when he had the the other guy who was who who thought he was the the emissary and they had the contest and he won and uh so this one is Cisco gets some sort of a you know science accident he gets science all up in his brain and he starts having visions and you know and as far as we can tell. Although, the episode is very good because we don't see his visions. We don't see... Yeah, you
1: never get inside Sisko's head in this episode.
3: But I will say that what you can measure, his his visions are accurate. He finds an he finds a Majoran equivalent of Troy, some ancient Majoran city of legend.
1: That was prophesied to... It's been lost for thousands of years, prophesied to only be found by one touched by the prophets.
3: Yeah. Um... And he uh, uh, eventually he starts doing like a prophet through the people, and starts telling people things He's about their walking lives. Walking
1: down the promenade, just He's, giving yeah. people words from the prophet. He's
3: giving Holy Spirit words of knowledge to people, basically.
1: And he walks up to this one admiral, and he says, "You know, don't worry about your son anymore. He forgives you." And as he walks away, the admiral's like, "How did he know I was arguing with Kevin?" Yeah. You know, it's
3: like. And this admiral's not even a believer. And yeah. what this is really about is it's about faith versus certainty. Because Worf and Kira are strongly on the side of faith. Even though Worf doesn't believe in the prophets, he believes in his own things. He's a spiritual person. So the spiritual people, they're all for Sisko with his visions. And the Starfleet people, like O'Brien and Dax and Bashir and the Admiral, they're all, uh, they're convinced that he's hallucinating or coming with random stuff. And the problem is that these visions, uh, it's the visions aren't hurting him but the condition that makes him susceptible to have the visions is hurting him and so the doctor keeps telling him you need to get this taken care of and he says i you can't
1: have surgery
3: i i can't give up these visions and the doctor says well until they until they risk your life i can't force you and it keeps going on and it's just there's a lot of depth and parallels to this and it's just i mean i i could really could i could just like if you want to see a good breakdown of this it, that goes into more detail, check out SF Debris on the site sfdebris.com, uh, the episode Rapture in Deep Space Nine. Uh, he does yeah, a really he good does breakdown. Good
1: talk about this.
3: And really, I'm on the same position as him on this episode, as in most episodes. So there's not much more, you know. Uh, one thing that's really interesting in this is if you remember Wynn all the way back from season one, sure, sure Vedic Win, and then Kai Wynn. And she's always been an enemy, always been despicable. Heck, in season one, she was committing she was masterminding terror acts and assassination attempts.
1: Yeah, she's the Bajoran religious authority that you love to hate.
3: Yes, and in this one, you you see a sincere side of her. She talks about how, uh, you know, for, she She talks about how she is now convinced he is the emissary. Before, the reason she'd been opposing him was she was convinced he was a fake. And now she's convinced he's real, and she she doesn't know what to do. And she talks about her own history, fighting the Cardassians with her faith, by standing against them and taking beatings.
1: And, and, and giving the teachings of the prophets against the law. Yeah.
3: And it's like, you start to see this other side of this character, and it's almost, it's not like the same as Scorpius and Farscape, which I say because Peter's such a big fan, and I want to show that this this Star Trek really is very farscape in that sense. But she's not complicated in the same ways as Scorpius, but I think the same level of complexity as Scorpius. To where, yeah, in general, they're an antagonist and an enemy, but they have complex motivations and sometimes even sympathetic purposes.
1: Yeah, they're not a complete cackling villain.
3: Yeah. Unfortunately, Season 7, which we'll be getting to in some time, Season 7 was a big drop and they lose a lot of what they gained. And eventually Wynn does get reduced back into a cackling villain, and it's a shame. Um,
1: But this episode is really good. Uh, Great exploration of, like you said, faith versus certainty.
3: And the Um, the nice thing is, you can side either way, and I think I really will side. Obviously, Kim and I, being Christians ourselves, we were siding with Cisco, you see your visions through.
1: The episode doesn't mash one answer up in your face. and say, you take it! You take
3: it! Yeah, it doesn't, we don't see Cisco have the visions, and oh yeah, these are true visions but we also we don't just sit there usually and that's why for star trek to do this especially is so impressive
1: yeah usually at the end you'd have your techno babble wrap up of oh well here was what was really going on in yeah his great,
3: that you mistook his, for something spiritual
1: nonsense lying on his vagus nerve or whatever yeah, yeah.
3: and you know and they don't do that because there are bad things happening in cisco he's he's not doing his job he's he's missing appointments But at the same time, he's doing great good, too. And, you know, he's got issues with his family. And I think of Moses. And if you've studied Moses, you'll know Moses had a terrible family life. Because his family really ended up getting in his his way of his calling. Because he got married before his calling. And, I mean, repeatedly he kept sending his wife away. And, you know, there's... And that happens sometimes. There's people who are called to something great by God. Often their personal lives suffer for it. I think that's why uh, Paul says It's better for a man not to marry if he can Because you're more free Sisko would have been a lot better off If he didn't have a family At least in this regard Because he'd be free to deal with this stuff But then you have to question Would this kill him But, um, And there's a I, I don't want to say there's a major turning point Because we get a look ahead Sisko mentions that he sees a vision of the future And the vision is accurate Because by this time they knew what they were doing and it's really interesting if you know where the future is. What his vision means. Because yeah. again, it's not just this vague thing. It's talking about specific events at the end of the season. And actually, not even the end of the season. Specific events about five episodes from now.
1: Well, it's, it's, it's advising that people not do something. That it's too soon to do it. And as you see the way the story will unfold he's later right. this season. He's right. If they had done this thing, it would have
3: doomed them. Yeah, it would have been horrible. And... Yeah, that's about all there is to it cuz I don't want to tell you everything that happens. But yeah, if you want to see if you want to see Star Trek for a rarity actually deal with religion and faith in a non-insulting, non-dismissive, non-judgmental way, but without violating what it is to be Star Trek because they don't just say, "Oh, we need us some Jesus now." Um, yeah, check out Rapture. It's it's a good episode. Also, it's just a good Cisco story. I mean, again, for the man who at the very beginning of the show was just as, was like Picard as far as when it comes to, well, anything spiritual is stupid.
1: Yeah, just as atheistic as most of our yeah. fetties.
3: And he is a, he's a spiritual man. And this band is such a nice gradual growth, but it doesn't feel out of nowhere either. It just feels like, like it's real like growth. Yeah. yeah. Um. That's about it. We'll see you next time for the last of Kira's pregnant stories, The Darkness and the Light.